Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today, no surprises, we'll be looking at coronavirus, COVID-19 and all who sail in her. What a week it's been. We've had the pandemic building for a little while now, but the world has completely gone topsy-turvy. We'll be looking at that. Uh, the stimulus packages that are being rolled out in responses, what it means for the political system, how our political systems are standing up, uh, and what all this means for we as citizens trying to go about our daily lives and still actually trade, exchange, and be with other human beings, which is, after all, the point of existence. Uh, to talk about that and related issues and also our for our fabulous books and culture segment, uh, I have with me in the studio, first of all, uh, Kurt Wallace, Research Fellow at the IPA. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, terrific piece in The Spectator Australia about uh, quantitative easing the Reserve Bank and uh, various insanities of that ilk. Uh, also in the studio, our wonderful Director of Policy, Gideon Rosner. Thank you, Scott. Gideon, great to have you. Great to be here as always. Uh, jacket's off. You're feeling it a little bit hot, hot in here. A little bit hot, mate. Yeah, not, yeah. Not, no, no, not no, a, no, no fever. No. Well, I've ordered a thermometer online, um, but it hasn't arrived yet. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised you can still get them. Could be a while. I went on a fruitless search around the pharmacies of the CBD last week looking for a thermometer for the office, but anyway, not to be. And... Also joining us via Skype from the IPA's isolation bunker, my co-host, <laughs> RMIT academic and IPA adjunct fellow, Dr. Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. I'm, I'm in self-quarantine down on the Mornington Peninsula. I have to say there are a few nicer places to self-quarantine. <laughs> yeah, so hardship I, posting. If this, is, if this is my pandemic experience, it's no bad thing. Yeah, I did actually, that, although there was a report out of the Mornington media that someone had been stabbed in a supermarket. Uh, unrelated uh, to uh, panic buying, though. Oh, it was it nothing was, to do with toilet no, paper. it was just a local Dero. And, so. not, and not, not, <coughs> no, not, not you then, Chris. I, 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 thought, I thought the same thing. I actually got really depressed when I found that out. I thought, oh, my God, it's coming to bloody knife fights over toilet paper. But no, <laughs> I was very relieved to find it was just a gang issue. Nothing to do with oh, that's so right, just We can all rest easy. It's just uh, yeah. another day in Dan Andrews' Victoria. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's all right. Life, then. life hasn't changed that much. Um, and, and we might dispense with this quickly, Chris. Why are you in self-quarantine? I'm in 12 quarantine, Scott, because I was in the UK last week um, uh, and I came back. I actually got back half an hour before the mandatory self-quarantine, but given that I have a bit of a cough, um, uh, I just thought, well, why not be, uh, be a good citizen in this uh, in this stressful time? Yep. Uh, and the IPA, like most, most workplaces now, has a rule that um, even if you don't have coronavirus, if you've got coughs or anything like that, just stay home. So... I think this will be one of the many permanent cultural changes which will actually come out of all this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dragging your backside into the office uh, despite being ill, I think, is a thing of the past. Thank God for that. Um, well, actually, Chris, I think the UK experience is a good place to start as any because uh, what we're watching is governments reacting in real time uh, to an emerging pandemic, uh, flailing around for solutions... Uh, trying their best to act on advice. And why I say the UK is a good place to start is the Prime Minister of the UK acting on advice, considered advice, delivered a strategy, which then lasted about three days before they completely yeah. changed tack. And uh, so that tells us a lot about what's going on. Chris? Yeah, well, I mean, to, to hearken on my 
experience. I had a bit of cough while I was in the UK, and it was during those couple of days that the UK had um, adopted what it's describing as the herd immunity policy. Um, and under that model, um, uh, we want as many people to get coronavirus or to get um, uh, the underlying virus in order to um, uh, get a so so that enough people have antibodies against the yeah. virus over time, or enough uh, enough people who are resilient to it anyway. Enough people are resilient to it. So what um, the situation was in the UK while I was there is that they weren't testing, so they would send you to hospital if they um, if you had hospitalisation requirements, but they weren't going to just test you if you had a fever or a cough. Now, I obviously didn't have a fever um, and my cough was only mild, but um, the NHS advice was uh, uh, just to stay home for seven days, as, as it was. Now, I, they have completely reversed this policy because they realised that what they're talking about is about 60 million people then in the UK alone getting the disease and with um, a very, very high associated mortality and serious problems with the healthcare sector and they're moving much more into the containment model um, that that we um, have adopted and lots of countries like uh, South Korea and Italy have adopted as well. Um, uh, but having said that, the herd immunity policy is also the policy of the Netherlands at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and quite quite explicit about it uh, too, Chris. I mean, the, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, I thought, uh, whether he's right or wrong, However, this lasts um, and only time will tell. Good only for taking accountability and, and actually uh, describing this policy and, uh, and uh, wearing that in terms of what it means for mortality. So it's a, he's actually uh, uh, being explicit about the trade-offs that he's making. Well, I think that's right. And I think, I think there's the broader, um, the, the broader thing that we should probably consider is um, the we are not just completely in uncharted territory, but the um, advice that medical systems are giving us, the advice that policymakers are receiving is um, all very tentative. Mm. And um, uh, because we have no precedent to work under. Um, a lot of people originally, when we started thinking about the recession that's coming, or even depression started parallel, uh, giving it a parallel to, say, 2008, um, the global financial crisis, or even the Great Depression, or something like that. But we are such we are in such uncharted territory that almost no other th there are almost no models for us to work on. And the parallel that I think is the most revealing or the most useful to think about is um, this is the equivalent of a wartime economy that we're going into. Um, uh, whether the government is making the right or wrong decisions about the extreme social isolation, that's the decisions that they're making. And, and we have to start thinking about just both unprecedented and um, uh, policies that are outside the normal rule book. And, and Scott, we were talking before about um, uh, about the way to think about how governments can and should respond to this. Um, and I, I just think that we, we need to really second guess a lot of the received wisdom that we have about things like policy responses, things like stimulus packages, um, even some of the things that we would normally advise. Um, w w they don't necessarily apply in such unprecedented and unique circumstances.
I mean, what do you mean by that, Chris? So you're saying we have to consider reconsider articles of faith, like uh, you know, no, our aversion to Keynesianism. Is it? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> um, so I, I, I wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a, a, a having a go at you. I'm, I'm genuinely uh, curious. No, no, you're not going to get me to be pro Keynesian. Um, Thank God for that. Uh, so, so if we think about it, um, the danger that we have right now is of massive um, job losses, particularly in um, hospitality sectors and and so forth, Mm. that are not caused by um, uh, problems of misallocation of funds, business decisions. Um, They're not caused by malinvestment, not caused by... um, uh, any mistakes that these businesses have made. Mm. They're caused by the fact that the government, rightly or wrongly, and maybe rightly, has decided to shut down those sectors for public health reasons. And so when I when we're thinking about the public policy responses, we should be thinking about public policy responses that, um, that tackle immediately the effects of the public health decisions that we have made, mm. not just random stimulate the economy like we did or, or might have done if this was a demand-driven recession, if this was a credit crunch, yeah. or any of these normal range things. Yeah. We're not talking about a financial sector crisis where we might say that the finance sector made bad decisions. We are talking about a shutdown of the economy. Mm. and. That circumstances, the um, economic response has to be based on the public health measures, not on just just sort of that that naive Keynesianism that yeah. the, the government seemed to be latching onto. And before we, before we get to the and and we got Kurt here, and we will be talking more about the specific stimulus measures. But before we get into that, um, Kurt, um, how do you uh, you know how do you bring your economic sort of uh, worldview? To this, uh, in terms of these responses, where um, we're talking, how do we think about the potential impacts uh, coming out of public health recommendations? So, if a public health expert is only focused on public health, they might say, "Well, let's do X because that's the way to fix that." I mean, how do how do you work your way through those issues? Well, I think that's um, something that always that pops up is that you know have one expert in one area saying, you know, even in like climate change, you have scientists saying this is the effect of of CO two on on the the temperature, um, and therefore then going on recommending economic responses mm. and not considering what the economic um, outcome of that is. So you have but um, they still enjoy the the aura of being the expert in that field, and then uh, are assumed to be able to speak to a whole um, host of related issues, which they don't have expertise in. Well, that's the fascinating thing, and I'm, I'm at the back of my mind. I'm thinking, how will Australia and the world indeed be a different place, especially in our sphere of the universe, being public policy eggheads after this is all over? And yeah, there will be, the, you know true to form, both sides of politics, the left will say, see, see, you don't listen to experts because of climate change, but you had to listen to experts because of corona, and you didn't die as a result, and if you don't want to die as a result of climate change, you have to listen to the experts here. Um, we should be saying, we being people who are tend to be more sceptical about matters like climate change, saying, no, this crisis has shown us that experts 
do get de- experts. Firstly, they differ in opinion. Uh, you know, uh, there are experts in the Netherlands and indeed the UK who say we need to give this virus to millions of people in order to make them immune to it, which is very different advice that you're getting from the chief medical officer here in Australia, which is in turn different advice from um, what you what the government is being told in the United States and other places. Um, and experts get it wrong. Experts are humans as well, uh, uh, human beings. They, they well, well, they're experts in the experts. They're things correct. In, in which they've got expertise. So, so, just so and, but I, I just need to make this point. So, to go take it back to climate change. You know, we we have been fed this line for too long. Well, the experts say we need more windmills, which will change the temperature of the earth. You know, some experts might think, and there is legitimate, you know. Uh, scientific argument to say that climate change is bad and so on. There are other experts who say the earth climate might be changing, CO2 might be having some sort of impact, but it's not as bad as we think. Other experts like Bjorn Lomborg, for example, might say, well, climate change is a problem, but the solution is something different. So I think what we need to do is bring about a change to the political culture where, of course, we need to listen to experts. We need to listen to people who are qualified, but we need to. we don't have to blindly accept everything that somebody who happens to have a university degree tells us. And we need to use our heads here. We need to use a bit of common judgment because otherwise you get a situation in which when you have two competing experts telling you slightly different things, people panic and start um, beating each other up for toilet paper in the aisles of our supermarket. <laughs> no, this, is, this is where we've ended up. We don't have... We, 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 we have lost our ability to, to, to think independently, I think. I think that's um, pointed out by Scott Morris in his press conference this morning, mm. I think Wednesday morning. Very good press conference on um, where he makes the point, like, um, you know, not listening to all of the, the rumours out there, just listen to our trusted sources. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, there's all these experts out there, but I'm telling you to listen to my to mine. experts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, my experts are better than yours. Correct. Which is a, really what a lot of um, debate in the public realm comes back to, mm. is, you know, mm. you choosing to go with well, your experts over the others. You look at economics, well, economics, you couldn't have a yeah. more divergent field of um, opinion yeah. um, with people recommending complete opposite Correct. Um, policy prescriptions. So um, I think that that is an issue of looking at how we think of uh, experts and the, and the, you know, the role we, yeah. we give them in public debate. And I think in Australia, we seem to have a, a certain uh, heightened problem with this. I think we have mm. a sort of tendency towards um, technocracy, which I think is really the number one enemy of, of freedom oh, is, is oh, technocracy. Yeah, yeah. But I, well, I think well, we have to make the yeah. distinction, though. I think the political culture and certainly the political class does. I think that the Australian people do think for themselves and do say, now, hang on, that, do, that doesn't make sense. You're telling me, for example, there are 88 genders. That, that, that doesn't sound right yeah. to me. Anyway. So, so yeah. Let me, let, me, let, me speak up, let, let me speak up for expertise. <laughs> because, because Thanks, I, Dr. I, Berg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, because I represent academia, um, uh, I, I think this is a unique situation um, insofar as that there's a just massive amount of uncertainty, um, and the challenge that the policymakers have to um, tackle is how do you make decisions that could be hugely consequential, and and we've all seen mm. vastly different assessments of the danger of um, widespread. Uh, if this disease becomes very widespread, mm. the governments have to make very, very consequential decisions. Yeah. Now, now they have to do so informed by experts, mm. but it will always be the case that the people who make the decisions are responsible for those decisions. Mm. Um, and right now those are, you know, the National Cabinet, which I know we'll talk a little bit about, but, you know, Scott Morrison and um, appointees, political and um, technocratic appointees to the government. Uh, and 
under no circumstances can we um, allow anybody to hide behind those um, uh, technocratic expertise because what they are doing is they're making political judgments mm. under uncertainty. That uh, I don't see that's, that is completely unavoidable, but um, we have to understand under what circumstances they're making those decisions. Can, can I, I actually want to go somewhere else with this. Sorry, sorry, good. Um, no, that's all right. Which is, it's also about when to use experts. Uh, and I've been reflecting on this. Uh, I went to a, an event um, uh, organised uh, by a friend at the Melbourne Forum uh, years ago, which was a, an address by Peter Doherty, um, Nobel Prize winner and expert on uh, immune systems and pandemics. And... Um, and he was uh, spruiking his new book, which he's allowed to do, but it was, it was – and I remember sitting watching this um, where he's basically saying, you know, that we, you know, uh, it was post-SARS, I think. Um, there'd been swine flu, different – different uh, swine fever, different things sweeping around the world. And he basically said, you know, there will be another pandemic sometime within the next five years and these will be the results. And I was reflecting that. Uh, since I don't have my hands on any of the levers of power, I sort of walked away not knowing what to do with that information. And then it, it probably attenuated away. And what we're having now is, just just as we did with the bushfires, uh, we sit around doing nothing until something happens. And then all of the attention is on some issue and all of the attention is about how we respond to some something. Mm. Whereas, say, what we're noticing in the case of uh, the current pandemic is countries like Singapore and Taiwan, which had lived through Correct. SARS Correct. and had taken public health measures for prevention and also for planned emergency response, are doing much better. I was reading um, Jennifer Hewitt uh, in the Financial Review and she made the point that it's a bit of a shock to Australians returning, say, from from Singapore where there's, um, uh, you know, whole body scans for temperature, there's, there's sanitizer everywhere, everyone's, you know, there's a lifetime supply of face masks for everybody, yeah. the whole, and they come back to Australia and uh, it's like, you know, go into isolation, no, no, can buy, I, can, can get I, into that taxi over there. Can I interrupt just to tell a story? A friend of mine actually went through that exact situation. He, yeah. His wife was in Japan, she's Japanese, um, and uh, he came back via Japan and Singapore, and you're right, they had the, the scan, the, the, the mobile, uh, the, you know, wireless radar thermometer things. They had people in body suits. They had the whole, it was like the country was at war, and he got to tell this is, you know, about two weeks ago, so before the worst of it sort of hit the media, and, you know, the, the response to Tullamarine was a poster, a sort of <laughs> A3 poster saying, if you're sick, please report to immigration. So... Yeah, it is ramping up quite significantly. And when I went through Perth International, um, they, they had a little stand. It was mainly posters, but they had a little stand and someone in full, um, uh, the full outfit. But it takes time. And, and no, 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 no. You're letting people off the hook here. <laughs> they, I'm, I'm saying that, that, that people like, you know, experts like Peter Doherty had said, this is coming down the track and, and across a range of... Of fields like Australia has been in la la land on on a whole bunch of of things. Um, uh, Greg Sheridan was drawing an analogy uh, in the Australian on on Saturday, say to you know we, yeah, the national fuel reserve, which is meant to be ninety days, instead it's like about um, five mm, weeks. You correct. know you know we the threats Australia faces, our political system is unable to cope with and mm. actually mobilise for effective preventative response. 
and then we put all the focus on just cobbling together a response. We can only we only seem to be able to deal with one issue at a time. Yeah. God forbid that this pandemic had have started during the bushfires. Our political yeah. system would have collapsed because That's we true. would have had to deal with two issues at once. That's true. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. No, you're right. No, no, no look, so um, I, I think there's a lot to that, but we shouldn't overstate the... There is such thing as too much preparedness for every potential scenario as well, because it is actually very expensive to do the sorts of things that places like Singapore and Hong Kong and Japan and and Taiwan have been doing for um, for the last decade. And if you've travelled through Hong Kong any time in the last decade or so, you'll have seen um, as you enter the airport, as you leave or uh, travel through the airport, I should say. Um, there'll be these um, heat detectors, but they won't be used. They'll be just sitting there defunct. Now, they're easy to spin up, but it's not like they've been scanning people for disease forever and, um, uh, and, and, and constantly. It's just not the case. There is, a, um, there is a concern that I have that as we come out the back of this, we may take the lesson that we should be overprepared for all potential contingencies mm. into the future. And that could also be quite damaging, especially as we try to spin the economy up. Now, I, I, I take all your points and I think that's all correct, but we shouldn't on the other side, over-invest in precaution um, if that means that um, uh, the good times won't be as good. Um, we have to prepare for the worst, but we can't be too precautious. Yeah. yeah. But I think there, I are, think there are there are things, issues like with like the, the, the fuel reserve, like it's pretty, like we, we've committed to, we should have at least three months um, yeah. of capacity there and it's it's only at a month. Like that's something that... That's been can, a strategic weakness for that, some time. That should yeah. um, be a no-brainer that we need to um, to increase that because, you know, if, if we had a supply chain issue with fuel, then the whole country would come to a complete rest um, <laughs> in, um, in in a month and there'd be no food in the supermarket yeah, so the trucks would completely stop. Yeah, so, do you think there'd be panic buying if there was no fuel in the damn country? <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. when you're considering risk, you need to consider, um, you know, a, a quite a basic step to avoid a, com- a, a complete catastrophe. Mm. And the other thing that uh, has sort of been um, in, the, in the media a bit is our reliance on on other countries for, for medication and particularly on China for, for medication. Now this is, you know, there's a couple of issues here. First of all, there's um, having, being dependent on a supply chain for um, something as crucial as, as antibiotics. Mm. The, the other thing is having that being controlled by yeah. the, the Chinese Communist Party. Now, it, it doesn't, I think to, to most people, it seems um, uh, foolish at the at the least, to to be completely dependent on on our enemies who 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 are willing to use these things as a weapon against us. Yeah, I I think this is well, it, it will ramp up and turbocharge the conversation that within the right we've been having for some time, which is, and you know the the, the people like myself, quite frankly, who say you know who believe the, the the dream that if China just became more economically developed, it would embrace freedom and liberalism and democracy. Like we have, that obviously has not been the case. We have to ask ourselves very hard questions about the extent to which we rely on the People's Republic of China. Not least of all, uh, one thing that this has really brought home to us is our over-reliance economically on education as an export, especially in that one market. And Chris, I'd be interested as our um, token representative from academia on your thoughts on that. I mean, how do we unscramble that egg? Do, do we need to at all? Uh, 
Um, so I think uh, so. That there are two points there. First of all, it would be devastating for our pandemic preparedness and response if we were to try to self to try to be self-sufficient on critical supplies. Um, Australia is a country of, what is it, 26 million people. Mm. We have only so much industrial capacity. Even if we turned our entire economy into industrial, um, uh, into producing medicines, we would be very unlikely to be able to supply ourselves the sorts of um, uh, supplies that we need compared to much larger countries like like China. Now, I don't think, uh, I, I have serious problems with um, uh, the way the Chinese Communist Party runs the Chinese economy, and I don't want to underestimate any of those. But the idea that we would be better off if we became more self-sufficient, I don't think is holding up even in this crisis. But do you, do you concede um, there's a middle I, ground though, Chris? I mean, what? I mean, this would not be as much of a problem. In, in fact, it might not be a problem at all if our medications were manufactured in Japan or... Um, uh, in the Netherlands or something. I mean, you know, this is the point that we've so, been having to so think about. Trading right, right with China now, is not the right, same as trading with another liberal democracy. Right, but but right now that's right now that's speculative. So yeah. um, we do we do have um, some serious supply constraints about some parts, particularly of the testing. But that those testing supply constraints have nothing to do with where the. Um, uh, uh, where they're manufactured. It's the fact that we've never needed this much. So, for instance, yeah. reagents, we've never needed this much um, of certain supplies before. Now, in a circumstance where you need a sudden massive amount of particular types of goods, um, that is precisely when you want to have the freest possible trade. So the places that can spin mm. up quickest can spin up for you. Now, um, I understand that people are going to, we're going to spend the next six to 12 months, even next couple of years, talking about whether supply chain vulnerabilities made us more vulnerable to this crisis. But I think it is just fundamentally absurd and fundamentally dangerous for us to um, try to use this crisis as a tool against something like free trade. If we want the capacity to um, deal with this right now, we cannot have barriers to making exchanges anywhere on the planet. It doesn't matter whether it's China mm. uh, uh, or, or, or Italy or uh, where, wherever it is. We just need to get stuff. We need to produce stuff and we need to distribute stuff as fast as possible. And anything else is laughable. If you take this crisis seriously, then um, uh, then those are conversations we can have in six to twelve to eighteen months. But but right now, sure, Chris, and and, and to and to clarify, you know me pretty well. You know I'm not a an anti free trader. I'm certainly not an economic nationalist no, or anything like that. Anyway, Gideon, just, Sorry, just, I'm just going to jump down your throat to prove a point. Oh, okay, all. right. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 get, I take the point, but anyway, yeah, yeah. no, no, it's a conversation we'll be having long, for a long time. I'm un sure. Unpack there. So I would like then. To turn to, we've talked about the economic um, impacts of the restrictions that are being placed uh, on people's daily lives, the the uh, interruptions to commerce, um, the impact on airlines and all these sorts of things. I would now like to turn to um, the calls then for stimulus measures or what the government should be doing to support the economy, quote unquote, during this difficult period. And um, Kurt, you've been having a look at that. Yeah, so I'll just outline the stimulus that the government has announced um, <laughs> so far. So, um, how long do we have? Yeah, so so last week there was the the, the seventeen point six billion dollars stimulus package 
uh, with five billion of that being uh, one-off $750 payments to uh, income support recipients, a uh, four billion dollars uh, on instant write-off and accelerated depreciation measures for for businesses, uh, eight billion dollars in employer cash flow boost. So that's uh, through um, uh, reimbursements for for taxes through. Um, through the BAS statements, and then you have a billion dollars uh, allocated for uh, specifically for affected regions. So that's that's part of the, the previously announced uh, 17.6 billion dollar stimulus from the government. And then um, yesterday we had the announcement of the, the 715 million dollar uh, support for the airlines, who are obviously under um, major stress. And so. Um, that $715 million is through reimbursements for government-imposed charges. So um, this is through um, reimbursements for air services fees, fuel excise, and regional aviation security charges. And so that's backdating um, to February 1st uh, through to April 30. So that's um, the major um, stimulus uh, support package that has been announced by the federal government um, and Morrison uh, as indicated this morning, uh, there's, there's more to come on that front, which you know is, is open to, to wild speculation, what exactly the details of that will be. So what's your assessment of that, Kurt? Well, I think um, there's, a, there's a number of components of those, those things that um, are good and bad. So uh, I think that when we're looking at re uh, reducing tax, taxation, I think that's, that's a good measure. But the government should be looking at ways it can get out of the way of stopping businesses from um, from operating, and I think that um, the measures on instant asset write-off and the depreciation are, are positive steps, and I think that that's reform that's that's been needed for for some time now. Uh, and then in terms of like the airline support, I think that's uh, if you're going to support the airlines, which obviously they're under severe stress with uh, you know the uh, international travel you know, uh, restrictions. Mm. Um, I think that the way to do that is by uh, reimbursing government fees, not by giving a handout, Correct. but by actually reducing um, the fees that they, they, that they were paid to the government I anyway. I mean, the, the thread I take away from a lot of these measures um, is cash flow. And, and, and as Chris said right at the top of the show, that's the difference between this and what you might call a, a classical sort of ideal type of, of, of a recession where you know, the, the, the business cycle turns and, and, and businesses at the margin who are the least efficient uh, and so on uh, uh, go under and that's almost, you know, a net improvement in the average productivity of the economy. What we're talking about here is uh, a shock which is driven by something, nothing to do with economics, mm. but does re does reveal some vulnerabilities, mind you. I mean, the, this was almost the, the correction, the recession that we, hmm. um, uh, you know, we've predicted uh, five of the last two recessions. I thought you were going to paraphrase PJK there for a second. Yeah, almost, almost got there. Um, uh, but uh, this focus on cash flow is right because no, no small business, no, no, no airline, for instance, very few businesses can survive this kind of cash flow crunch uh, that we're looking at and that's uh, um, uh, so they've, they've addressed that well I think yeah I think that's um, I think I think I'd add that for now it's just a mm. it's a shock that's affecting uh, like these the cash flow issues and I think that we've been uh, talking about um, a recession on the cards for for some time now and we're overdue uh, like you just have to look at um, the Reserve Bank's actions all through last year <laughs> um, you know there was 
very concerned about um, the track that we we're on. Um, and now all of a sudden uh, it's all um, just speaking that it's just the response to the coronavirus. There were no underlying issues, but we might um, get onto that. Well, yeah, uh, it's, it's, when we talk it, about it's the still a demand. Yeah, 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 demand. And, and, that, and that's going to be the huge problem that um, uh, macroeconomic policymakers are going to have to be thinking about over the next 12 months or so. Because I actually support quite significant intervention in the economy now from the government because I think that this is a um, non-standard economic crisis. It's not caused by, as I said, a financial crisis or something like that. But um, when it intervenes and when it makes um, uh, sort of targeted interventions in various sectors, um, it's also going to encourage the same malinvestment that a normal recession would have cleared out. Mm. Um, so whatever we do now, we're probably going to pay for for many, many years to come. Um, in that sense, the government's also got to be thinking about, okay, well, what's the um, what's the path out of all these both interventions and what is the growth strategy that comes off the back of um, uh, the coronavirus. Because coronavirus, the worst case scenarios are, you know, six months or something like that. I think Scott Morrison this morning was speaking about um, uh, a six month time frame for a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the policy interventions. But what happens after that six months? And we've got to be thinking, how can we restore a growth rate to the economy that gets all the people who are going to be displaced from particularly casual jobs and so forth, how can we get them back into the workforce as quickly as possible? Making making the trade-off between the necessary interventions and um, uh, and making sure that we don't do harmful interventions is going to be very, very hard. I think uh, I wouldn't discount um, the... The possibility that this does prick an actual financial um, a financial crash, and I think that then it's going what, to get. What do you mean, prick a financial? As in trigger one? Yeah, well, I think that there's been underlying issues um, mm. in the financial realm for some time, like ever since the GFC, really. Um, that could be pricked by this. What, what do you um, mean financially? You're talking about in, like the financial so markets like in, yeah, or yeah, the financial markets. Rig- yeah, okay. Uh, economic, um, like that going through like the credit system and all right, that. Okay. So similar to sort of the things we saw uh, in the GFC. So um, it doesn't take, you know, if you have people being laid off, it doesn't take much for that to, to spread to, mm. throughout the economy. And then soon it becomes a very messy uh, picture of dealing with what is due to our um, health um, uh, safety measures and what is due to, um, you know, the recession that was um, probably on its way anyway. Well, we, uh, and that's, then, that's that's as a just as a matter of um, uh, pure prediction on my part. I think that the government's going to maximise its interventions, and then and then as as you and I will agree, Kurt, we're going to be dealing with the um, very unfortunate outcomes of those interventions for years. Um, I I doubt that there will be any. Um, uh, I I, I, I doubt that anybody will stop the government intervening maximally in the economy over the next six months. It depends what it looks like. I mean, one thing that is somewhat encouraging is that for all the stimulus packages foibles, and I can talk about that fully in a second, at least it contained an element of cutting taxes, instant asset write-offs. I mean, I'd prefer to see tax cuts outright, uh, but I'll take what I can get. Um, But they, they, they... who knows? I mean, they, they, they will inevitably announce a second stimulus. Uh, they may announce tax cuts. Now, the expertocracy, such as it is, tells us, and they're probably right, that tax cuts don't have immediate the immediate effect like cash handouts do. Why not bring them forward? Why not backdate them? Backdate them. Also- 
the, the, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Kitty, mm. but they're also not very well targeted to the problem. No. Um, so I'm I'm all for tax cuts, and if this is an opportunity to cut taxes, that is that is a good thing. Mm. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that it'll have very that it'll have much effect on the precise economic problem that we have, no. because um, uh, restaurants that can't hire staff will not be affected, but uh, will will not benefit from tax cuts. People. Mm on um, uh, casual employment who are unable to get half their shifts will not benefit from tax cuts. So tax cuts are good and I like tax cuts. Yeah. We shouldn't kid ourselves that they are the sort of targeted intervention that will make an effect on the economy right now. Oh, well, That's I think we, we, work, we, <laughs> we all work on the basis nowadays that these stimulus packages, and it's always capital S, capital P, that you see rolled out to virtually any kind of shock, whether it's a bushfires or any anything, they're almost a performative act. Yeah, it's, it's it's almost like the media demands them, the public expects governments to do something, they roll them out. It's almost as if no one really thinks that they are actually fit for purpose or particularly do anything. But and 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 even I mean, sometimes I feel like. Uh, my own criticism of these stimulus packages is also off a script. I mean, this is hmm. how can we – our fundamental challenge, and it's the IPA's challenge, that's, that's why we're here, but also all right-thinking individuals is how do we bring out of this, how do we change the conversation to that longer-term thing? And, and, and some of our hooks – some of our hooks, I'd like to invite the panel panel to think about this for a moment. Some of the hooks uh, actually come out of it. So I'm going to I'm looking at um, an excellent column, and I don't sa just say that because Janet Orwickson is uh, the chair of the IPA. Um, it's, uh, she makes a very good point, which is, uh, for instance, the Council of Financial Regulators uh, met over the weekend and looked at their regulations of, of say, the credit markets and realised that they had a dampening effect on credit and said, look, we're going to regulate in a very light-handed way and we're going to relax our restrictions and we're not going to come after you if you start lending. So that's an example of a hook where you say, well, if they're admitting that these these the regulations were having a terrible dampening effect yeah. and the regulators have been overzealous, why the hell don't we do something about that? Um, you know, instant asset write-offs would be another example Kurt, um, uh, how do we change the debate to actually bring it back to focus on the underlying things? Like even I, I've seen governments talking about a freeze on um, uh, various utilities. Why, why the hell has it always been assumed that they, they could keep jacking up their prices by 3 or 4% 4, 4 yeah. every year in a climate when, when the price of everything else is crashing? Well, I think it, it sort of demonstrates that, um, a lack of ambition on, on the government's part uh, in terms of... Uh, their lack of reform, like, like the coalition government's been been in power for uh, six, going on seven years, uh, and they haven't. Sorry, in office, but not in power. Yeah, well, <laughs> as someone has remarked. Yeah, yeah, well, that that may be the case, but the the issue is that they haven't been pushing forward any of these of reforms, even like the the tax cuts um, in in last year's budget, which were were very good, delayed to to full effect to for you know twenty twenty five. Um, and, and if they'd had, you know, if they'd put just indexed the, uh, the, the rates, the, the thresholds when they came into office, we'd be in a better position than we are now. So I think that even on like the tax cuts, the government hasn't moved. Mm. Uh, you look at red tape, um, there was a initiative under Abbott to, to cut red tape, um, which um, some of our analysis at the IPA has shown um, did have uh, a good effect, mm. but then it was abandoned and then, um, you know, just back to... Um, the, the constant um, 
a mass of, of red tape. And I think that we need to sort of look at issues um, that are underlying um, that's, that are a real drag on the economy and prevent um, the economy from, from recovering from shocks such as the ones that we're facing. And I think that... This, this one is, sorry, go on. Oh, so I was just going to say that I think that um, some of these issues when we think about business, um, payroll tax and all these things, often um, in, the, in the debate... Um, in the public debate is um, not understood economically. People think that, you know, businesses are against workers. Um, what's good for the business is bad for workers. Whereas I think that even uh, when we're looking at um, the response um, to, the, to uh, what's happening now, that we can see that what's good for business is obviously good for workers. And mm. we need to, to make that case and to, to look at, you know, ways that we can get the government off businesses back so that they can help um, the workers and, and flows straight through the economy. On a political level, don't underestimate the capacity that the other side and the cultural left will have uh, to use this to their own ends. We're already seeing it. So there was all, already people galore out there saying, aha, see how important a public health system is? Uh, you know, using opportunistically this, uh, this, tra this crisis to almost scare people more into what could have been if, if uh, you know, this wonderful thing called Medicare wasn't there. But I saw, um, oh, what's her name, the head of Per Capita yesterday tweeted something, the effect of, this has shown us why uh, capital, uh, we need to restructure the economy to better meet human need and care for the planet. What has this got to do with environmental <laughs> issues whatsoever? There are people who say that the wave of panic buying we are see would have, that would, is, is it because of, quote, rampant capitalism, and it would have been more preferable if we had a situation in which goods like toilet paper and bread were doled out by a central government. I mean, this is really, really loopy stuff. So I personally was planning on holding back on making overtly political comments about this, but after spending, as I do, too long on Twitter, I'm saying, no, we need to be out of the blocks now. We need to be fighting back against uh, the the you know, the outbreak of corona has been bad. The outbreak of rampant and obnoxious statism as a result of this will be even worse. And we have to start pushing against against it now. We have to mobilise. We have to organise. And Chris, while you're gathering your thoughts, I will make the flippant <laughs> response also that in terms I rarely of, gather my thoughts. <laughs> in, in terms of saving the planet. This is actually the opportunity to bring back single-use plastic bags, here, which are here. much more hygienic That's right. than telling people to bring in your goddamn Hessian sack yeah. and what and carry that around a supermarket Correct. after you've coughed all over Correct. it. I'm going to tweet that later today. Actually, you yeah. know what? You know what's great at spreading, <laughs> uh, stopping the spread of disease? Plastic. There are single-use plastic bags are the most hygienic and brilliant product on the market. Plastic gets a bad rap. We should celebrate plastic, Chris. Okay. So, I mean, this is a bit of a theme for 2020 because we had this conversation in the wake of the bushfires. Um, I think what the um, lesson of the coronavirus is going to be is that we need to, it's not that we need to make our economy more socialist, or we need to um, involve the government more. It's that we need to make our capacity, uh, our economy more resilient. We need to make our economy more responsive and we need to um, ensure that our businesses, our social services can quickly respond to changing needs. Now, some of those changing needs are things like, so some people have seen the story uh, over the last 24 or 48 hours about um, some of the red tape that's making it really hard to supply supermarkets 
on the off hours overnight. Um, the idea that we have red tape that makes it harder to tackle this crisis is, is catastrophic and is one of the reasons that we've always been opposed to overregulation in the first place, because it makes our economy less resilient, because it makes our economy less capable of responding to unpredictable shocks. Um, I think the bushfires taught us a lot about that, and I think the, the coronavirus is gonna teach us a lot about this. So the, it's it's not the problem for today, but the problem for the next couple of years is to restructure our regulatory frameworks so that businesses can make quick decisions about where to put staff, about how to um, uh, how to manage um, economic exchange and production uh, in environments that, that we're not ready for and we're not used to. If this is an opportunity for us to start rethinking some of those um, uh, sort of stale nostrums about the importance of having lots and lots of regulation. This is this is this is that moment. This is that moment indeed. Uh, one of the things that businesses and organisations are doing, of course, is practicing some social distancing, uh, encouraging uh, some or all of their staff to work from home. And uh, of course, we believe that anyone who's meant to be working from home should be working at home. But if you are at home and have more time on your hands and are looking for recreation, we have come to that part of the show, hmm. which is our books and culture segment. We are going to talk about what we've been reading, watching and listening to, and we will have real tips for you to while away those excess hours. Um, I should mention, by the way, that Looking Forward is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs, which relies entirely on support from members and donations from members of the general public. Uh, we do not accept government funding. Uh, if you're not already a member, please do go to the ipa.org.au website and find out how you can join or donate and access some of our terrific research and get to know some of our terrific people. Who's going to lead us off here? Oh, I might, may as well go first. Uh, with my, since, since I stared you down. Yeah, with, with, my, <laughs> with my very serious and uh, intellectually uh, weighty contribution. Well, no, people, people are looking for... For distraction. Well, actually, this for is... For distraction. This no, is, absolutely, that's well, what we're here for. Well, I mean, the, I, I, I've been listening to a podcast about... Co it's called COVID-19. It's, it right? it's a product of uh, ABC News oh, uh, Network. Right. No, 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 no. Oh, the, the, American, one. the American one. It's... Excellent. Really? Okay. But Berg told me I wasn't allowed to make that my culture pick because <laughs> we'll, we'll have done coronavirus to death. So. Well, well, anyway. Um, <laughs> must, I, must I, be hard living under my dictatorship, Scott. Yes. The, uh, the Bergocracy. No, um, I, uh, I, I, embarrassingly, I haven't been reading all that much in terms of serious books I, uh, since uh, I finished off Capitalism and Freedom, which I reviewed last time. But I have been playing this game. It's a video game that came out a few years ago. Um, I've been playing the phone app version. It's called Plague Inc. or Plague Incorporated. Uh, so not from Australia, otherwise it would be Plague Proprietary Limited or uh, Plague Limited. Um, anyway, it's a game in which you simulate creating a public health epidemic. Uh, you can pick a, a bacterial <laughs> infection, a virus, a fungus. So do uh, you play the epidemic? Yeah, 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 yeah. So sure. you... you you pick this is the, a very poor taste. So, well, no, but this is the thing. So, and then what what happened was I used to play it years ago. I think three or four years ago, I used to have it on my phone and played on the tram and whatever. And uh, when all this talk about spreading and transmission and mutating and everything else, 
I, it jogged my memory and I, so I downloaded this old game again. And, yeah, so basically you, you pick the characteristics, you know, nausea, vomiting, and you can sort of dial up the characteristics. You know, you get more points for more people infected and so on. And, uh, the, and you have to sort of make this virus infect as many people as possible before the, the uh, scientific community finds a cure. Anyway, it's, uh, you know, addictive and uh, like all those phone games. Ah, but it is a very, very good educational tool if you want to understand more about how these things spread and uh, and how we should prevent them. So there is there is method to the madness here, and I didn't just callously bring this up uh, because you know we should remember, of course, that it is a serious virus for a lot of people, and we don't want to make light of it. But uh, it's something to pass the time, and also, as I said, to uh, sort of uh, simulate or, or get your head around uh, why this is a problem and how it's spreading. Uh, it is uh, something that is very topical and might be. A little bit enjoyable and make people's lives a little bit more pleasant in lockdown. What a remarkable culture pick! No, I, th- I think it's tremendous. Well, in in many ways, the high culture, Chris. High culture. The, the the algorithms in this game, I suspect, are not greatly different to those that are actually used by public health professionals. When no, they, it when taps they, itself as being hyper realistic. When when they stand up there, uh, stand next to President this or Prime Minister that, and there's all these charts with you know curves of varying shapes saying this is how it's going to unfold over the next three months or whatever but i'm sure they're just using exactly the same yeah. set of algorithms mm. and and if you can tweak them you know we'll increase social isolation by this amount yep. or you know the this famous r constant which is the rate of transmission mm-hmm. the mortality rates uh you know we're getting better and better estimates yeah all the time Mm. Um, you know, mortality rates appear to be about 1%, but, you know, half of people appear who get the virus yeah. appear not to have any symptoms. Well, how many charts have we all poured over on, you know, medium and things like that with, uh, you know, exponential curves and things like that? Yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's, it's... And as Berg said at the top of the show, the problem is probably not the models, it's the it's the data that's going into them. Yeah, correct. Because we just don't know. So we good, just don't know. Good fun for those of us who don't happen to be epidemiologists. Um, I know that Kurt has a reasonably serious one, so I might I might jump in here, um, uh, which is uh, Star Trek Picard, the uh, the latest show on the streaming service. I'm watching it on uh, Amazon Prime. Um, anyone who's out of the uh, Star Trek tradition will be all over this like a rash. Um, if you're not, I still do commend it to you. Uh, it probably is a bit of fan service. It'd be hard to pick up if you haven't been through it. At the very least, Star Trek The Next Generation, where uh, Jean-Luc Picard uh, made his name, the actor uh, Patrick Stewart. Uh, this is picking up the story after something like 25 years. Um, Patrick Stewart is 79. Um, and uh, for those who are fans, it is just remarkable watching him just go around again and do his thing. Um, Star Trek for me is a guilty pleasure, I must admit. Um, uh, there's been a lot of complaints in this segment. Over our uh, historic uh, 55 episode uh, run that uh, science fiction, that movies have all gone woke, Star Trek was always a little bit woke. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> Just a little. It was started by, you know, the creative genius was uh, Gene Roddenberry. Uh, he was a real West Coast hippie. Hmm. There was always a bit of, you know, peace and love out there. They spiced up all the episodes with, with fights. So it used to alternate between good aliens and bad aliens. And then the episodes that Roddenberry always fought for was when you know, you'd win over the aliens, you know, so the, so the Klingons were the enemy in the original series and then lo and behold, by the time you get to the era 
a few decades later in the next generation. You know, we've made peace with the Klingons. That's you know? all right. I don't mind making peace with the Klingons. I'm not, I'm not a Trekkie, but I don't mind, you know, peace and cooperation and things like that. But if, if Captain Picard started banging on about, uh, you know, how in the Starship Enterprise it's a great vantage point to see the effect of climate change, then I'd be pretty worried. Oh, it's, uh, actually, it's about the only thing they haven't, they haven't done in there. They didn't bang on about it too much. But, uh, no, it's, it's, it's more about... Uh, um, uh, in in the lefty speak, um, uh, battling the idea that there's the other, and and the other in this oh, case is no. the Romulans, because okay, we made friends with the Klingons, but those Romulans, they were they were still assholes, <laughs> you know, we could still dislike them. So this is a bit of a through line. But anyway, um, uh, I won't go into the plot because it doesn't really matter if you're a fan uh, or thinking about watching it. The the showrunner um, and chief writer is uh, Michael Chabon. Uh, who is one of my favourite writers going around. I've previously recommended to Gideon uh, the Yiddish Policeman's <laughs> uh, Union uh, Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. He's a great, great uh, writer and uh, some of the scripts for this are absolutely crackling. Uh, the first three episodes were tremendously boring uh, while they laid out all of the factors in this very complex uh, sort of storyline that they'd made. And then eventually the story gets moving and it's pretty damned awesome. And as I say, uh, Pat, watching Patrick Stewart uh, with his sort of uh, British thespian background do his thing is wonderful. There's a guy from Melbourne who uh, plays this um, uh, Romulan uh, uh, fighter um, who speaks in this incredible Melbourne accent? <laughs> like even, but even other Australians on on uh, on Twitter, uh, sorry, on the on the Facebook groups that I'm part of, they say even the ones from Sydney notice that his accent is more is Melbourne. Melbourne really? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's um, but someone someone else speaks. Uh, one of the other Romulans speaks with an Irish accent, so huh. it's sort of okay. Well, it's, it's the universal translator. The Commonwealth of Romulans. I'm, I'm glad the Romulans are multicultural. That's yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. So Diversity uh, in, in uh, alien species. Yeah. Yeah. So there's uh, there's a bit of fan service in there. Old characters come back, but lots of new characters and. Um, uh, and really, this this we do live in a glorious age of of streaming services. And as Star Wars uh, turns to shit, um, Star Trek's actually getting better and better. So that's that's my definitely my culture pick there. Uh, am I to assume that it's not consistent with the recent sequence of movies that have come out where they they sort of reset James Kirk and uh, uh, all that? Yeah, well, that's. Uh, 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 the Christopher Pine universe, that, that's actually called the, the Kelvin universe in a, in a handy little trick. That is now an alternate timeline uh, oh, be, nice. because Eric Banner interfered with the timeline by going back through time and, and, and blowing up um, uh, blowing up the Kelvin and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So don't, yes, it's it's a different different universe. That, that and, sounds like hours of fun on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So they're going to re, they're actually going to do another movie with the, the, the Chris Pine character if they, if they can land it, but it's going to get a bit complex because it's def, complete, now completely out of sync with what they're doing with Discovery and Picard and, and all these kinds of things. So. All right. <laughs> Good. <clears throat> well, why don't I uh, do my one? Sure. So, um, every time I travel, I try to read something about the place that I'm visiting. And, and uh, so when I was in the UK last week, I read um, uh, a book on Brexit. Uh, Tim Shipman's, it's called All Out War, the mm, full story cool. of how Brexit sank Britain's political class. The <laughs> book was written in, in 2016. Um, it's, a, it's actually a very, very good um, uh, book. People have... Um, uh, people recommend it very highly, and I can see why as a 
very comprehensive um, outline of not how we got to Brexit, but how the campaign unfolded, um, how the different political parties and different um, and Remainers and Leave um, interacted both within themselves and between. And there's a couple of there's a couple of really interesting takeouts that I had, and I um, one of which I I understood the the absolute regardless of where you stand on um brexit jeremy corbyn's performance was just abominable Mm -hmm. as a man who clearly could not stand up to the demands of the time that he was in unable to really make a decision about whether to support brexit or or um support remain just just a humiliation from uh, the Labour Party's perspective. And if you were a, a Remainer, and I'm, I'm not a Remainer by any means, but if you're a Remainer, you would be very right to be absolutely incandescent with rage about Jeremy Corbyn's performance, um, uh, his inability to, to um, uh, join the campaign in any way really kept the Labour Party out of the game um, uh, almost entirely. So, so that's why Brexit ended up being conservative Remainers versus conservative Leavers. Um, the other strong takeaway, and this is something I didn't really understand, is how much both sides, because of the strange nature of a referendum, both sides ended up acting like, by the end of their campaign, governments in waiting. And the Leavers actually started out putting policy proposals that obviously they had no capacity to implement and no way to, um, uh, because they didn't hold the government. They weren't a government in waiting, but they realised that as the campaign went on, people wanted to know, well, what will the post-Brexit policy be on this? Mm. And, and from leave, they also wanted to hear David Cameron. So what will your um, uh, post-referendum policy be on on that? Now, because it's not a gov- an election for the government, no sides could credibly commit to any of those policies, but there was such a demand for it that, that we ended up having, or the UK ended up having, this sort of shadow policy debate between two potential governments that were, in fact, just one government divided. It was a, it was a very strange thing, and it really un- emphasised to me how poorly we are set up for referendum campaigns. There's such demand for us as citizens to have our say directly, but how poorly set up representative democracy is for those sorts of things. And and obviously this book was published in 2016, but obviously the um, uh, the years in between the vote occurring and, um, and actual Brexit occurring um, has only underscored that those challenges. What do you mean by policies, Chris? I mean, I know they said things, you know, the Leave side, for instance, said things like the however millions of pounds we send Brussels every year can go into the NHS. Is it that sort of argument? Or no, it- no. What should the immigration policy be? Right. Things like that. So uh, sh- should we have an Australian point system? Now, um, oh, okay, right. uh, regardless of what we think about those policies specifically, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove were in no position to implement no regardless of whether they won or lost their referendum. Now, now I understand why why they felt that they had to do those proposals because the media and the public were actually asking for, well, if we leave, then what will the policies be? Mm. But because it wasn't an election for government, no one could credibly commit to anything. But, I mean, do, do, do you think that's necessary? I mean, do, can't voters, wouldn't voters be 
reasonably smart enough to 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 get that nuance. That it's not a, a a policy manifesto of a party of government. It's just a a. a but what is it? Well, it's yeah, good question. Good question. What effects are some? I I um I know a lot of people like to knock the. Yeah, um, uh, the low information voters, and I'm not one of those people. No, but, neither um, am I. For we, that shouldn't, we, we shouldn't assume that um, everybody is paying as much attention as we in the political class are. And if you and I struggle to figure out exactly how to describe those policy proposals, um, it would be uh, for people whose job is not to focus on public policy 24 hours a day, mm. it's um, uh, it, it would have been a real challenge. Now, um, uh, ultimately, Brexit happened, and I think that's ultimately a good thing. But um, it's a really fascinating case study in the interaction between a um, referendum and a representative democratic system. Mm. I've got to ask, is there any... Re- I read a terrific article the other day on the Conservative Party's um, uh, European uh, Research Group, which is... Um, uh, which was formed in 1993. Uh, these are the Euro, the hardcore of the Eurosceptics. And, of course, uh, they were seen as the absolute lunatics. Never happened. What on earth are they talking about? Um, but the article, I wish um, I could remember where it was, pointed out what a damn near-run thing this whole thing was. They really had to thread the needle. There's only ever, you know, av- they average about 20 MPs, the hardcore levers, um, you know, lots of... Conservative MPs claim to be leavers, but never really have. Uh, even now, there are still some of my colleagues who don't believe that Boris Johnson will actually follow through on all the promises he's made about properly leaving the EU. Um, and uh, you know, they they but they were they took advantage of the little leverage they had. Their gift was when uh, that silly Theresa May had the election and left them with such a narrow majority. Uh, which made them players, um, and then, uh, but and then, of course, all those uh, votes where, if Labor had of supported um, the pl- the deals that Theresa May was bringing back from the EU, then they would have been dealt out of the game. But they they used what little leverage they had um, uh, to actually. Uh, Bring down first of all Theresa May, install Boris Johnson, and then work to secure Brexit. Just, just oh, that, amazing. That, I mean, that, that's right. And, that, again, it, and that's it, all in it the just book. Comes to, it, it just comes to. So, uh, you may have seen the Brexit movie with um, about Dominic Cummins. Yes, which you know is is good fun. It has some it has some factual issues. That was brilliant. Obviously. Oh yeah, it was a hatchet. But but, but the, I think the failure in all our analysis there is Labor could have stopped this. Labor could have yeah. stopped this many, many, many times mm. um, uh, had they been run by a 10% capable leader. Yeah. But um, <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn is not that leader. But also, Chris, also, Chris, you're ignoring the fact, and maybe the book cast some light on this, but ironically, Brexit was actually the only thing that Jeremy Corbyn was ever good on in a sense. He was always, for the wrong reasons, he was always sceptical about the EU because he saw it as some sort of nefarious, uh, you know, capitalist institution that looked after after the big end of town. Almost like people used to talk about uh, the G20 and things like that. So I think... Uh, It's not necessarily just that the flesh was weak, but also the spirit wasn't willing, I think. Oh, no, I I think that's right. And and Corbyn's um, uh, failure to stand up for um, Remain was because he he didn't believe in Remain Mm. uh, quite clearly. Um, uh, But having said that, he ran a majority Remain party. Now, Mm. if he'd stood up for 
leave, that would be a completely separate thing. I, I, mm. I, but but as it was, he just sort of waffled. He waffled, yeah. And and that is the that is the complete opposite of leadership, and that is um, and that failure meant that Labor was sidelined. So if he'd stood up as a lever, then no doubt Labor would have reformed like the Conservatives did around Remain factions and Leave factions, mm. and it could have been a very different race. So uh, in a couple of weeks' time, I'll, I'll get uh, Kurt back on the show to talk about how the uh, uh, the world economic crisis has led to the collapse of the uh, the euro and uh, the European Union and, uh, and so on. But uh, that's for another yeah. day. And the WHO, that's, can we get rid of that as that, well? That's not today's culture pick uh, from you, is it, Kurt? No. So I've been currently reading uh, Abraham Kuyper's Our Program, a Christian uh, political manifesto, Ooh. which is a recent translation of uh, the... Dutch Prime Minister um, from 1901 to 1905, his uh, political manifesto for the party that he led, which was the Anti-Revolutionary Party, which is a catchy title. Um, and and for those uh, listening rather than viewing, that is a very it's thick a big, book. Uh, yeah. thick, for a practising politician, that's uh, this gentleman clearly had some uh, some writing chops as well. Kurt. Yeah, so... You could injure somebody with that book. So, so Abraham Kuyper was uh, a very major theologian uh, in the Reformed Dutch Reformed tradition uh, and is still a very uh, highly respected theologian in the broader uh, Reformed Presbyterian world. Uh, he also he was a founder of a newspaper. Uh, he also founded the Free University of Amsterdam, which I believe is... Uh, under a different name, still a major university in Amsterdam. Um, it was sort of a sort of a, almost a Renaissance figure, and I think it's what's interesting about this book is that we're dealing with a a philosopher who has like these you know overarching concepts. He's dealing with you know the big picture, but then he's also willing to get into the the nitty gritty of of the uh, public policy um, debates of the time. So uh, that's that's it's it's a pretty interesting read. Um, from from that perspective, having someone deal with um, you know things like how do we deal with containing contagious diseases, for example, mm. that's that's in. The, so that's what's in it, the what's book. his what's his outlook broadly speaking? So, so Kuiper is uh, well known for his being like a um, someone who developed the Calvinistic worldview. Right. So um, his view was that um, as Christians and particularly um, in the Calvinist tradition um, that individuals' faith should not just be a private thing but a public thing that informs all areas of life. So right. his project is sort of working out uh, a Christian view of, of politics, of, of public life in, in all the realms. And I think that's um, one of the, the, the reasons why he's, he's still read today is for that uh, broader analysis of how all these things tie together inside a Christian worldview. So two, two follow-up questions. Firstly, did that... I mean, what is that sort of view in, in, a, in the sense we'd understand, you know, liberalism, conservatism and so on? Did it gain currency in the Netherlands? And then how do you square that, if so, with the Netherlands's um, notoriously liberal, small-l liberal, socially liberal policies, you know, including you, know, you can get weed there easily and all sorts of other things, prostitution and, you know... Yeah, I'm not sure uh, Kuiper would be... No, he wouldn't that, be. He wouldn't approve. With, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, what that's what I'm asking. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, so I'm asking. so it's, it's interesting because he's dealing... Uh, like, his party was the anti-revolutionary party and right, he, okay. uh, he draws on Burke a lot in terms of his analysis of 
um, the French Revolution. He's uh, and he joins Burke in um, being favourable towards the the Glorious Revolution mm. and the the American Revolution, and, and as well as the the revolution in in, uh, in the Netherlands when uh, they fought uh, against Spain. Um, he's sort of dealing with the rise of, of modernism uh, and this mm. this uh, liberal anti-God, anti-church um, um, movement that was was on the rise. And I think that. Um, obviously, the Netherlands has a very strong uh, Calvinist um, tradition, um, where his his views could really, um, uh, you know, gain traction because of that of that um, that that history. Um, obviously, I think that uh, unfortunately, from my perspective, Kuiper's vision didn't didn't win out uh, in, in the Netherlands, but. It, one of his his key uh, things that he's known for in the political realm is his this idea of sphere sovereignty, mm. which is that uh, there are different spheres of society that all have um, authority uh, given to them by God and and not through the state. So uh, the right. family, um, the unit, the family unit has authority in it um, directly for God and not. Through the state, oh, get around uh, that. Businesses have, um, you know, a sphere of sovereignty. Mm. Um, all of these spheres, spheres of society, are not um, centrally controlled, and the government needs to stick in its lane mm. and oh, not I interfere. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's more like yeah, it. Yeah, and not interfere with the authority structures um, that God has ordained in 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 all of the spheres of society. But so this clearly has um, ramifications in views that would be. Mm. Uh, held around this table um, yeah. in terms of limited government and not having um, the state become an, all, an all-encompassing thing throughout all of society. It's an interesting dynamic, and I appreciate we're almost out of time, but, um, I mean, this is the sort of underrated uh, function of religion, particularly for sort of um, libertarians like myself, which is it is a buffer against the state. It is, And that's why the left... And the, uh, uh, particularly socialists hate religion so much because it is a, is a competing source of authority than the state. So, uh, no, interesting, uh, interesting. And, and also, a way take. forward, I think um, all those in a religious tradition and all religious traditions grapple with this idea of um, uh, what do you do in this modern world with the state, and uh, even say within, uh, say, Catholic uh, 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 in a, political debates at the moment, you know, on the one and you know, you hear, um, is it the Benedict option? Do we withdraw and retreat from the world and, mm. and just, you know, uh, deal with our own uh, little moral um, uh, circumstances or is it, uh, or then alternatively it feeds into something like national conservatism, which is like, oh, no, no, we have to actually get hold of the levers of the state and implement uh, a social vision or, or say um, Orthodox Jews have no theory of the state. So mm. they, they, they they go to Israel and then say, they, you know, they won't accept national service. Yeah. Well, that, that, just to clarify, because I think it's yeah. an important point, again, I'm, I'm sorry for taking us over no, time, no. but the, the ultra-Orthodox issue there is mostly that they don't actually recognise that the secular state of Israel can be established until the Messiah comes and rebuilds the third <laughs> temple. So, yeah, it's exactly. a slight nuance, but yeah, it's no, uh, no, but unfortunately, much as I'd like to believe otherwise, um, Jews are not, by uh, theologically speaking, you know, anti-government anarchists. Unfortunately, no, no. But I'm saying there, there are always different traditions within yeah, religions. Correct, is, is correct. Exactly what you find. That was only the point I was, I was trying to make. And as I yeah. as I mentioned to you, I follow so much news about Israel that I'm now <laughs> on my Instagram feed, Jerusalem Estates, this wonderful new housing. <laughs> 
development for ultra-Orthodox Jews <laughs> keeps coming up in my Instagram feed. Yeah, you, you, you could move to a, to a settlement, uh, be yeah. Scott Hardbergovitz. Yeah, well, only, only if the Jared Kushner uh, approved peace plan gets up. Well, yeah. Then, yeah. So we, we shall see. Uh, but... It's a, it's a surprisingly interesting book there, Kurt, I must say, given, given the, uh, how you initially described it. So thank yeah, so you. I think, um, yeah, particularly if you're uh, a Christian, I think that's a, it's a worthwhile reading Kuiper. Um, there are you know, more accessible things as well um, to read, but this is quite uh, accessible and you can actually see how we dealt with individual issues, which is, is always interesting. We shall, of course, uh, have a link to that in the show notes along with the other books that we've talked about and, and some of the key references from our discussion. Um, uh, Chris, any, any, any closing words? No, look, oh, I'm coughs. just looking forward to being out of quarantine. That's y- all. Yes, um, very <laughs> the, good. The world's looking forward to that as well, Chris. And yeah. um, only after you stop coughing will you be allowed <laughs> back into the uh, into the Bellevue Meyer studio. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, excuse me. Yeah, as if on cue. Oh, uh, okay. Got to we'll flatten the curve. We'll fix that one in post. Um, <laughs> before I, Sorry, uh, I, I, I coughed as I was speaking then. Yeah, no, no, don't fix it in post. That was all part of the picture big thank you to our uh, our crew in the studio today uh to josh and to mitch and to steve all of whom yeah. were in here at various times and for facili- and saul also facilitating this uh skype link uh with chris from the bunker um hopefully the uh the video that's come through will will work uh, very well a big thank you also to our listeners and those who are supporting the ipa if you're not already a member please do go to ipa.org.au we hope you enjoy the programs uh that we've recommended during your period of social isolation i'd like to thank uh our panelists in the studio today uh kurt wallace thank you gideon rosner and of course uh remotely chris berg Thanks, Scott. And we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.